LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present the second of two sessions recorded at home with Anthony Peake, inspired by his latest book, Cheating the Ferryman, The Revolutionary Science of Life After Death. Is there life after death? This age-old question has plagued humankind from the moment we became self-aware, but do we now have enough evidence to answer it? In this mind-expanding book, Peak reveals an extraordinary model of life after death, one that brings together ideas from ancient philosophy, neuroscience, quantum physics and consciousness studies, and manages to explain a number of seemingly mysterious experiences such as precognition, déjà vu, synchronicity, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. The book is a much-awaited follow-up to Peak's internationally best-selling Is There Life After Death? which introduced his revolutionary model. Since then, he has amassed more evidence, using new studies by world-leading researchers, theories from the likes of Stephen Hawking, Carl Jung, and Hugh Everett, together with testimonies of near-death experiences and precognitive experiences, which give everyday clues to our immortality. Cheating the Ferryman presents an astounding model of survival after death that is supported by, rather than in conflict with, our present understanding of how the universe works. So folks, hello and welcome once again to Legalize Freedom. I'm here uh, at home with Anthony Peake, and this is the second session of our discussion about Anthony's latest book, Cheating the Ferryman, The Revolutionary Science of Life After Death. If you want to pick up uh, session one, just click on the link on the information page uh, for this talk, legalizefreedom.com, you find the link towards the bottom of the page. Um, however, this uh, section can be listened to independently. So, um, I said at the end of the first session, we were going to get into the nature of time and space, talk a little bit about astronomy and related matters, and of course, delve once again into the fascinating realms of quantum physics. Now, we, we danced around this uh, dimension, shall I call it? I, I like that word a lot. <laughs> I refer to aspect. You know, I find myself in the supermarket talking about the many different dimensions of the cheese selection. Sort of thing, you know? But yeah, the nature of time and space and the idea of these not being uh, fundamental in ultimate reality, whatever that is. But And I used the idea or the phrase, rather, uh, scaffolding in that the 3D five centrality that we're experiencing here, um, that time and space function as, uh, you know, there are metrics we can use that uh, are, are, you know, maybe even human constructs in some way to make sense of this experience. You know, we experience time in a certain way or we think we do. Our experience, if we take away linear time, 
then it becomes a bit nonsensical and scrambled. So we, we need that. So I don't know how you'd like to kick off um, a discussion on uh, net, fundamental nature of time and space for, in, in terms of the cheating, the Ferryman hypothesis, you know, the, mm. the core of your new book. Well, I suppose I'd like to open with one of the um, famous quotations, and I can't remember who did it now. It possibly was Einstein. And it was the idea that time is nature's way of making sure that everything doesn't happen at the same time. And there's a deep profundity there because, of course, Einstein also said that um, time is an illusion, but a very, very persistent one. And, of course, I'll end up with my three quotes by also quoting St. Augustine, who said when he was doing his research, said, time is something that you think you understand until you really start to think about it. And then suddenly you find it isn't. Now, of course, time is the is is another dimension of space time. And it is the framework by which everything happens. But what is peculiar is, according to Einsteinian physics, um, what happens is that when you get towards the speed of light, time and space change into each other. So you get less and less space, more space, less time. And time and space are aspects of the same thing. So suddenly you start to get into some very, very strange conundrums about what is really taking place. Now, is time something that is clock time and you look at a clock and you see um, a finger hand moving round, but that's geometry it's not time and people confuse the two time is elastic time is not consistent time as i've said in previous books is the only thing i know that is measured by itself you can only ever have a minute of a minute and i don't know whether your minute is the same as my minute because we know when we're dreaming time expands and everything else as well and i spent 380 pages, I think, in my book, um, The Labyrinth of Time, trying to understand what time was. And at the end of it, I was like saying to Augustine, I, I really didn't fully ever understand exactly what time is. Um, but clearly, for instance, space, again, talking about space, when you think about space, what do you think about? Well, do you think about absence of things? Space, space is something that is between objects. And Ernest Mach, who was a very famous German um, physicist, um, argued that if there were no objects in space, there would be no it, there would be no space. So, in other words, if you had if space just consisted of two planets and one of them disappeared, what would happen to the space around the other planet, the planet that had disappeared? It would disappear literally, because space is absence of things, and. It used to be that the um, the original scientists like Newton argued that space was the kind of the, the container which everything happened. But it's more complex than that. You know, it's, it's not just the container and it's not just empty. Recent discoveries have found that when we think of empty space, what we've actually got is something called a quantum vacuum. And that is full. It's not a vacuum at all. It's a plenum. It's full of virtual particles that flit in and out of existence. There's something called the zero point field that seems to fill space and time as if it's kind of almost, you know, the old principle of the, the luminiferous ether, the idea of there's the substance that light travels through to get from the sun to the earth. And this is where the, the big questions start to lie. And I, I finish with um, something that always has interested me. And it's the idea of how we look at human life in terms of time. 
And it comes down to um, the concept of the Linga Surya, which is a Hindu concept called the long body. And how I'd give the analysis of this is I say, the critical fusion facility of the human eye is 24 images to the second. So your eye scans, your, your retina scans, 24 images a second, which like a cartoon, you then get the feeling of movement. But just imagine a creature that's critical fusion facility is an hour. So if you, it's like having a stop motion camera in a room and you have the exposure open for a minute. So in that room, you wouldn't have individual people you would have a melding of human bodies all going into each other as they walk around the room. But that's no more the correct viewpoint than our viewpoint is. It's all arbitrary depending upon how you view things. So then imagine the critical fusion facility of a year and imagine that a creature whose critical fusion facility is a year looking at the planet Earth and it would be like a donut. It would be a donut going around the sun. And in terms, there'll be a corkscrew as the sun itself moves towards Alpha Centauri. So it'd be like a spiral, two spirals going around each other. And then on the surface of that planet, up to around about eight or nine feet, would just be this mass of protoplasm as people walk into each other and wander around. So suddenly the idea of space in terms of distance between people suddenly changes. Now, then you can imagine if somebody was able to take a stop camera photograph of you through your life, your whole life in one image. And what you'd be is this long creature that would be smaller, like a snake, and it'd get bigger and bigger, and then it'd get smaller and smaller. And each second of your life is one slice. And this is called block time. This is what Minkowski talked about. The idea that there is a block time that we all exist within, and we move through the blocks. Now, I did a an event at the National Theatre about 12 years ago in front of a production of Time and the Conways by J.B. Priestley. And one of the concepts of Time and the Conways is how time works. It's a very, very clever play. Check it out if you can. And indeed, if you're interested, check out my book on J.B. Priestley, um, which I discuss this play in detail. But to get over the idea of the long body, and it was brilliant what the, the director did. I think it was uh, Gould, Rupert Gould. And what he did was, he had the central actress, um, and she was leaning against um, a, a, a fireplace, and she was wearing this beautiful white Edwardian dress. And what they did was, they had a strobe light, and the screen, the stage suddenly was in a strobe light. And what they did was, they had a series of actresses, about 20 of them, all dressed in exactly the same way as the actress, all stand with the same wig and everything else, all standing in slightly different positions around the room. And as the strobe light followed them, you had the illusion of movement and you had the illusion that she was waving at you and looking. And it was an extraordinary effect. And this very much backs up the theories of somebody called um, uh, Julian Barber. And he wrote a book a few years ago called The End of Time. And that was his argument. Time is not what we think it is. Time is as much a subjective experience as everything else is. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> lots of people will have had experiences um, of time that would appear appeared warped, usually slowed down. That tends to be though speed up is also possible. The classic one that we hear about um, is uh, time flies when you're enjoying yourself. Mm. You know, that idea. Um, just jump in there. My favourite quote is uh, Groucho Marx. 
time, time, time flies like a banana, but fr- fruit flies like a banana, but fruit flies like a fruit, like fruit. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. I'll look it up later. Yeah, okay, okay. So I was saying about the common one being time flying when you're having a good time. And the other side of that is uh, you're sitting in the dentist's waiting room waiting yeah. to be drilled and, you know, you might only be there for 10 minutes, but it feels like a week. Now, in our interview around the labyrinth of time, uh, which, again, people will find linked up here. Um, That's I, it. I've got it. Time flies like an arrow, but flu- fruit flies like a banana. So, <laughs> so the other side of what I was saying was... Um, you know, you're sitting in the dentist's waiting room waiting to be drilled. You might only be there for 10 minutes, but it feels like a week. Uh, now, when we did our interview around your book, The Labyrinth of Time, which you referred to, um, I remember telling you about the experience I had a car crash. Mm-hmm. And it was a high-speed car crash. And I lost control of the car and went into a spin, 360-degree spin. I did multiple 360 spins as I crossed the central reservation into the oncoming traffic, collided with the car coming the other way, kept put that car into a spin and it kept going that the other way in a spin. And meanwhile, I went through the fence at the other side of the road and into um, a farmer's field. And eventually the car came to rest and that was that. But I clearly remember the experience of when it happened. I just remember, I could see what was happening with the car and I just remember going, no, 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 because I, you know, I just... I thought I'm going to die. And then the car just flipped around. As soon as it started flipping, um, perception of time completely changed. And it was like being part of some kind of weird mechanical ballet dance. And I had time to think of, I just had time to think going round. There's a car coming the other way. Come round. I'm closer to that car now. He's not going to be able to stop. I'm out of control. There's nothing I can do. Round again. A car's going to hit me shortly. It's almost on me. Um, maybe I'll get past the car and into the field before he reaches. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. Bang. And then went round again. And I thought, well, the engine stopped. Um, I, am I hurt? I don't know if I'm hurt. Bang, the fence and then all the grass, the long grass coming up around the windscreen. And eventually the car stopped. And I was sat there and I just noticed that the radio was still in the car. The engine had cut out. But the radio was still playing. And I thought, well, the radio was still playing. That's not broken. And then I thought, oh, I better check my arms and legs. (laughs) And Now, all of that felt like it happened in the time that I just described it. Yeah. It was maybe, what, three or four seconds? It was literally, you know, the car was bang, 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 through the fence. That was it, you know. But all that really felt to me like it was happening in slow motion. And it's a cliche, but that's what it felt like. So I thought it was worth recounting that. And maybe people listening to this will have had a similar experience of time dilation in a stressful situation. And in your uh, current book, you mentioned the experience of someone, a climber having a fall. And I had a little miniature version of that. It didn't come to any harm, but I was in Cumbria um, walking along, um, I say walking along a rock face. It was only maybe, the drop was maybe seven or eight feet. And I slipped the top and fell off the side, and somehow, even though it wasn't completely sheer, it went outwards at a slight angle, and I slid down that, went on my back, and slid down it on my back, and landed on the rocks below on my back, mm-hmm. completely unhurt. But as I went down, I remember thinking, <laughs> again, this is it, oh, that didn't hurt when I fell over. I'm sliding down this, but I know it's down below, because I was looking, so I'm not going to fall and see, it's just some rock. 
And then I remember thinking, oh, my jacket and my jeans are going to get all covered in moss. You know, oh, well, I suppose we can go back to the B&B and clean up. <laughs> I don't know this happened between then where I went bang onto the rock and it took about two seconds. So my brain is, it's almost like a dream sequence. My brain is being able to process all this stuff and have a completely different experience. Now, if that's possible, then map that onto some of the extreme experiences. You've talked about people, you know, uh, in terrible road accidents and what happens to their people who are the near-death experience, people who go through all of these time expansion and contraction phenomena that you detail in the book. And But if, if you even had an inkling of time dilation like I have and you have, then you can begin to, to make room for that in your own experience. And this is what I think your, your book is so good at, is pointing to experiences that I think a lot of people can relate to, but for some reason they don't make the leap. Mm -hmm. They don't say, okay, I've had that experience. If that's possible, then maybe a more extreme version of that is possible. And if that's the case, what does that say about time and space and their place in our perception of reality? I think you're quite right there. And it's it's something that has long fascinated me, this whole under stress time dilation. And in the, the initial book, um, uh, in 2006, I very much put it down to the glutamate flood. And I argued that in times of great stress, the neurotransmitter glutamate is released in the brain. And that brings about a slowing down of time, particularly because there's been parallels drawn between the effects of glutamate in the brain and the, uh, the uh, recreational, well, now recreational drug, um, ketamine. And people who take ketamine tell me that they have the similar sensations of time slowing down but I think it's more complex than that I think that probably what is taking place here is it's a release of endogenous dimethyltryptamine in the brain and that at points of stress the pineal gland synthesizes from melatonin into what um, uh, an associate of mine uh, Beach Barrett calls metatonin which is endogenous DMT and the DMT then puts you into a completely different perceptual time frame. And clearly it is some kind of survival mechanism because you had the time to think about had it been you'd been attacked or something at that time rather than being in a car crash, you would have had time to calculate your next move if somebody was attacking you or something like this. So you can see the evolutionary purpose behind, behind that. But there is then the counter argument to say, well, as I said earlier on in the, the previous discussion, there is an argument to say that what happens is that time dilates at the point of death because it all comes down really to near death experiences as well. And remember, I was discussing about mountain climbers and how time slows down for them. And this is such a, a common occurrence. People, the amount of people that have spoken to me that said they have that time dilation effect. But interestingly enough, People who also experience this are people who experience temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience migraine and various other things. So clearly this whole time dilation thing is extraordinarily interesting, as is something that I've long been fascinated with as well. Time slips. You know, when people find themselves and it happened to me, I had a, an extraordinary experience um, in um, 1984. I was traveling around Turkey. And we got to a place called Miletus, which is an ancient Greek city on the Aegean coastline. And it sits next to a river called the Menderus. And the Menderus River is where we get the word meander from. It's a big river valley and the river meanders down. And we were wandering around the, the ancient site. There was only about four or five of us. And I broke off from the group and I, I felt disassociated. 
Yeah, I, had, I felt what Jenny Randalls would call the Oz factor. I just felt strange and I wanted to be away from people. And I found a deserted mosque at the edge of the site and I climbed onto the roof for some bizarre reason. And I sat on the roof and I'm looking out over the river, over the river valley, the Frat River Plain, going down towards the sea. And there was a hill in the middle of the river plain. And suddenly the air seemed to shiver around me. And this absolutely happened to me. Suddenly the, the river plain was not a river. It was, it was an inlet of the sea. And the little hillock I could see was an island. And I'm shaking my head. And there's this kind of silent buzz, silent feeling of buzzing electricity in the air. And then I swear I saw the front of a Greek Tyreme come out from the corner of the island. And everything shimmered. And it disappeared. Now, what is extraordinary about this story is that a few weeks later, I was reading the Sunday Times magazine and they had a travel section. And in the travel section, somebody had, the guy had written and he said, he said, I was at Militus um, recently and I had the most peculiar time slip sensation. Exactly. So somebody else had had in the same location because I checked up the history and I was seeing Militus as it was um, around about 1200 BC. So is this, does this play into the holographic thing uh, that you mentioned earlier when the last session? Because what you just described is also like that scene in The Man in the High Castle. Yes. You know, seeing Los Angeles as it was um, in a different time period. And if we're talking about time, or sorry, time being, um, we, it's common, again, cliche that it's time being an illusion, but an illusion it isn't because we have some kind of experience that we interpret as passing linear time. So it's not an illusion in that sense, but it's not as it appears to be. So uh, that that given, so there's if there isn't time, if there isn't past and present in that linear sense uh, that we're talking about, then is there some kind of never-ending now? Although you made you, like, you quoted that uh, you know was it was it Einstein or you know mm. the, the time so everything doesn't all happen at once <laughs> basically that's why we have time <laughs> but in that context if you were looking at where you were um as it was or as it still is but but in uh, that is a representative of the idea of a never-ending now but in that case what happens to what we call the past and where is the future mm. because this starts if we have all these things you know nested and stacked like that if our a way of experiencing these events is through what we call linear time. That can account for how the past and future can be accessible in certain circumstances. Mm. And it's quite an important point here about one of the other um, areas of quantum physics I discuss. And it's something called the transactional interpretation of quantum physics. Very, very little known, but very, very intriguing. Uh, and in this model, it argues that there are two forms of waves, time waves, or even just waves of electromagnetic energy called advanced and retarded waves. And advanced waves go from the past into the future, but retarded waves, I think, I never I always never know when I get this the right way around, but suffice to say, there's two different types. And one of them literally is going backwards in time. So there are two waves, one coming forwards in time and one going backwards in, in linear time. And I argue in the book that the point where the two of them intersect, where they, where they hit each other, 
Now, if you take two waves and you put them together and you overlock, uh, overlap them, you get what's called an interference pattern, which is again a hologram. These holograms are created by an interference pattern. And I suggest, and I need to really do the science more and speak to people that really know about this. But for an idea, let's assume that the present moment is literally the interface point between advanced waves and retarded waves coming to, by the way, the guy's coming up with this guy called John Kramer, if anybody wants to read it. And the present moment is literally just that interface. And it doesn't move. It's just the waves moving. What is happening is it's the waves that are moving. Now, again, we need to think more clearly about what we talk about time flow. And it's a very important point. Marcus Aurelius used the term time is like a river. But the counter question is, well, if time is like a river, how do we measure its flow? You can measure a river. You stand by a river bank and the river bank can tell you which direction the river is flowing and what speed it is. But imagine there's no river bank. How do you know the speed of the river? So when you say time is a river and it's flowing, but what's it flowing against? What is the the measurement tool? It's not clocks because clocks are not the same kind of thing. So. The argument was, and it's a very clever argument put together, I think, in 1927 by an Irish aeronautical engineer called John William Dunn. And Dunn argued that the way we measure time is against another time. There is another time that abuts onto this time, which he called time two. And time one moves against time two. And time two moves against time three. And he called this serial time. And he argued that each of us has a conscious awareness in each of these times. So there's a Greg that exists in time one, which is you in this linear time. There's another Greg in time two that has a broader understanding of the present moment. And then there's another Greg in even broader time, which then explains precognition. And J.W. Don explained precognitive dreams this way in his book, um, his book, uh, An Experiment with Time. And he argued that this is how we recognize things in dreams, because when we dream, we access the thinking patterns of observer two. I'd call observer two the daemon. So this means time is much more interesting than we first understand it to be. Now, if there's embedded times, this would explain why sometimes you can flick within times. Your perception is in the present moment what Philip K. Dick would call orthogonal time. But you can move within time. Now, of course, as you know, Philip K. Dick in his, what he called his theophany, which took place in 2374, he argued that he discovered that he, in fact, time had stopped in 70 AD when the, the temple was destroyed by the Romans after the Maccabean Rebellion, and that time stopped then. And he, in fact, was somebody living in 70 AD. And he discovered this in his dream sequences. But who's to say that we're not a myriad of characters in our dreams? So when you have dreams, are you actually dreaming the life of somebody else that's living in a different time scale or even a different dimension of space time? Could this explain how, for instance, um, the example of either, which um, Robert Monroe uh, encountered when he was in his out-of-body experiences. And I'll always love the tale. Um, as you know, Robert Monroe was a world-famous out-of-body experience. wrote a series of books on it. He was a businessman that had a series of peculiar out-of-body experiences. But what used to happen to him, he'd go into an out-of-body experience and he'd find himself in the body 
of somebody else that was him in another world, which he called either. And literally, he would just drop into this guy's body in the most peculiar of circumstances. He'd suddenly go to sleep and suddenly he'd be looking out this guy's eyes. And there was one incident which was humorous beyond words, whereby he finds himself in this guy's body and he's in the middle of a business deal. And he's got these guys sitting in front of him and he's negotiating some business deal. But of course, Robert inside this guy's head doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So he starts rambling. And he said, uh, he said that either's wife was looking at him going, what's wrong with you? And then he found himself back in his body again. And I thought, this is interesting. This could be almost the parallel with temporal lobe absences. When people have temporal lobe epilepsy and they have absences. Or the idea of drop-ins that you have in mediumship, you know, where a medium suddenly has a drop-in spirit that just comes in from nowhere. Could it be people coming in from other dimensions of space-time within dreams? Have you heard any of the stories about, I'm not sure if the phenomenon has been given a name, but the one that sticks in my mind, without being able to recall all the specific details, it was somewhere in a big city in the US in modern times, um, a, I can't remember even if it was a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, being found wandering the streets in a confused state, wearing clothes from either the 1920s or the Victorian era, just decades gone by, and just somebody just thinking, this is, a, is this a street drinker? Is this a homeless person? Why are they dressed like that? Is this somebody who's mentally ill? You know, they, they just appear to not know what's going on. And... The story, you know, the person gets taken in, the story gets looked into, and they say who they are, and they say where they've come from. They're saying, well, that, you know, that place is different now, blah, blah, blah. So they appear to be out of time. They appear mm-hmm. to suddenly, like, you know, jump forward in time, again, experiencing the city as, it, as, it, as they would see it in the future, and that's why they're so confused. But in this particular story, they looked into it. They got this person's name and details and he looked up the records, which were complete at this point, because you start, you know, I think with industrialization and people were moved into right. cities, you started keeping track of people in a way that they yeah. didn't when right. it was a mostly rural existence. You know, you had a census and things like that. Yeah. So they're able to look back and say, yeah, look, we have this person, this name, this address in the 1920s, and they disappeared, <laughs> never to be seen again. <laughs> so you'd have to look that up, but that's one story I remember reading. And... It's, it's documented, and people just say, oh, well, you know, that, you know, what does that tell us? Well, I'm not quite sure, but it's, it's a very strange phenomenon, and I would put that in the category of children, for example, who, who give detailed accounts of past lives, yes. and they then verify details in their account that they could not possibly know. You know, a little child of five or six saying, I was this person in this place in this time, and I did this and I did that. And researchers, you know, there's whole books of these accounts. Yes, they're all. They've gone into it. They said, yeah, that ch- checks out. There's, and then no one can account for this unless we go into some of the areas that you and I are going into. So, but I particularly like that one. It was, it seemed like a form of time travel. It, 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 it's very interesting here in that somebody that um, I've been interviewed by on a number of occasions, and he's interviewed me as a guy called Paul Lino, uh, who is a, a ghost researcher in Rhode Island in the States. And one of his particularly interesting stories um, of one of the events he was involved in was the trapped children, where there was supposedly ghostly activity in the, 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 the I think it was the basement of this house. And he and him and his, his team investigated this and they could see children moving around like a kind of a picture, a kind of film 
spread. And the kids could see them and they were looking at them and waving at them. And they realized that it was a, it was a time slip. They were actually looking into somewhere else. And then a few weeks later, I don't know if it was later or before, but Paul then was doing an investigation and this is extraordinary. He was doing an investigation of a haunting somewhere in, I think it's New Hampshire. And there's a particular village in New Hampshire that these particular hauntings take place. And him and his team were there and they were surrounded by the sound of horses moving and carts moving and people talking to each other in this really strange language. And they got back and they, I don't know if they recorded it or they made some notes of the sound of the language, but they discovered the language was Welsh. So they did some research and lo and behold, there was a Welsh speaking community in that area in about the 1750s, 1760s. So again, we have these kind of time capsule traps where people can either move in time, you know, like the Dieppe landings, the repeat of the Dieppe landings that took place in what, 1947, which is, which is discussed. There's, there's Mrs. Mobley and Jordan in where in 1903 or 04, I think it was where they had the time slip in the Tuileries Gardens at Versailles. Um, all of these suggest that time, you can slip in and out of the weavings of time. And of course, in my home city of Liverpool, there is a famous area of time slips at the bottom of Bold Street. And there's been a number of them. And I suggested that the reasons why these time slips happen there is it's underneath is where all the railway lines confluence in the, in the metro underneath Liverpool. And it's been confirmed because somebody contacted me after I made that statement and they were an engineer. And they said, yes, literally under Bowl Street is where all the electric cables come together. So it seems that some kind of um, electromagnetic warping is taking place there with time. Because people will walk down Bowl Street and they will see it completely differently. There's so many elements, you know, some people walk down and they'll see the shops as they were in the 1930s. And it's happened not just once, but on many, many occasions. So what is taking place there? And then you have the issues of lost time. One of my friends, Richard Fleming, told me a story when he was fruit picking in Kent. And him and his friend finished their um, their shift as a fruit pickers. And they drove about three or four miles to the local pub. And they got to the local pub. So they left work at three, 10 minute drive, 10 past three. It was the time when pubs were open all day. Went into the pub, bought themselves a pint, sat down, sipped the pint and looked at their watches. And it was six o'clock at night. And both of them did the same thing and said, how is it six o'clock? Where had they gone? What had happened? Was it, was that they'd been snatched by aliens? But they, they both swear. And Richard, you know, is a grounded guy. And he said, I have never been able to explain that. He said, if it was just me on my own, I'd say, you know, I'd had a blackout. But two of us in a car, you know. Um, so these time, time elements are, are just extraordinary. And again, I think these are clues to something very intriguing, I think. Um, I find it difficult to get through interviews and these general topics without throwing in pop culture references. And um, there's a TV series that went out in the late 70s, one of the best bits of television ever made, in my opinion. Um, in, from the golden days of you know, television as a, as a challenging medium, mm-hmm. something that would make you think, a, t- a TV series called Sapphire and Steve. Oh, yes. You might yeah. remember it. And they, they did a great deal with the time anomalies 
time slips and all sorts of high strains, shall we say. So if listeners are not familiar with Sapphire and Steam, check that out. Many of the episodes are available on YouTube. One thing I didn't quite get onto earlier, I think, in the last session was, although we hinted at it, was the demonic influence in feeding us information or giving us hints about mm. what's going on and how, whether we're really attuned to that or not, you know, will vary from person to person. Um, but can, can we say that f- even group phenomena like that, you know, those two gentlemen who experienced that time slip or another, you know, the daemon being an individual thing, could we see like some sort of demonic influence in some of these? I mean, is it some kind of breadcrumb trail, perhaps, and mm-hmm. suggestions uh, that you know this uh, this experience you're having is not what you think it is? Yeah. And, and if so, well, is there a purpose for that? Are we being kind of you know encouraged towards something? Are we just being played with? Uh, is it there's there, is there an evil history? Are we being driven? Is the the demon uh, in its higher form? Um, attempting to achieve something with this. It's literally like, you know, like it's a series of clues. Nail on the head. You've just hit the nail on the head there. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.